Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, and today we're going to be covering verses 13 to 19. Romans 14, 13 to uh, 19. And uh, let's see, if we could have the sermon slide up. Or is that working today? Great, thank you. I, you see a couple guys up there. You might recognize one of them. How many of you have ever, ever heard of Cal Thomas? Cal Thomas. He's a very, very conservative commentator, Christian commentator. He's America's number one syndicated Christian columnist, as some of you know. He also writes for USA Today. He regularly appears on Fox News as well as on various radio stations. And the guy next to him, you probably don't recognize him, his name is Bob Beckel. And Bob Beckel is a very liberal uh, uh, democratic strategist. And look at that, they're shaking hands. Does that say something or what? Believe it or not, the two are friends. They're, they're lifelong friends. And uh, because they're such good friends, they can often find, in fact, usually they find common grounds on issues that our people in Washington have failed to find. And so they wrote a book called Common Ground, How to Stop the Partisan War That is Destroying America. You know, um, that's not an overstatement. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And in a lot of ways, we're doing the same thing in Washington. Uh, Look what we're doing. We're fighting while America's burning. You know, it used to be that politicians didn't always agree with each other, but at least they were civil with each other, right? By showing respect, they found a common ground. They even became friends uh, off the record. (laughs) in the Senate and elsewhere. They found common ground. They got important things done, such as building the nation's interstate highway system way back when, such as rebuilding uh, Europe and Japan after World War II, and uh, on and on. But now, politics, so often anyway, is not, is not just about disagreeing with the other guy. Too often it's about trying to personally destroy him or to bankrupt him or with legal fees or to put him in jail. That's happening in a lot of places. Not surprisingly, then, it's a bit hard to find common ground uh, in a system like that. Some of the book's recommendations, and this leads right into our passage, so bear with me. Uh, We need to realize that today's polarization is more about holding on to power than solving problems that most voters really care about on both sides of of the aisle. The candidates um, to vote for are the ones who have a demonstrated record in leadership and forging compromises and accomplishing things. Not ideologues who have a history of dividing us. They say, don't vote for those people. We need to look for candidates who are willing to admit their opponents have at least some good ideas, who don't make the devil incarnate out of them. That just becomes counterproductive. And we need to be particularly skeptical of candidates who have nothing but negative ads. There's a whole lot more, and though I don't agree with it all, there's a lot here in this book that's worth reading, and that we need to be reading at a time when, as never before maybe, America is in danger of being destroyed. And here we are self-destructing. The very people who should be solving our problems are destroying themselves. And I don't think that's very Christian. Is it? Do you think it is? Sometimes you feel, can't we just get along? So often, our side, if you're on the Christian right, becomes so unchristian in defending Christian principles 
and they're just throwing fuel onto the fire. So often we fight like cornered animals as Christians, as though our kingdom were of this earth. In our passage for today, the Scripture kind of, kind of helps us to rise above the fray and uh, to tell us one of the most powerful ways that we can rise above this fray, that we can rise above it in our partisan, polarized day when it's so easy to say, it's my way or the highway. I titled this message, When Rights Are Wrong. When rights are wrong, which is something that the American Christians, myself included sometimes, really need to start getting straight. In Iron Hour this week, we, to tee up our discussion for this passage, the question we began with was this. What are some of our rights and responsibilities as Christians in America? What are some of our rights and responsibilities as Christians in America? And I thought it was a pretty quick, uh, easy question, but it wasn't a very long discussion. And so I had to do a lot of dancing, filling a lot of space. I wasn't prepared for a half-hour message. And so I said a lot of things that I don't even remember what I said. But, but why wasn't there a lot of discussion around that issue? Well, maybe it's because we as Christians are a little conflicted in this whole thing of, of our rights, of demanding our rights. Maybe it's because we are a little different as a church, as I think we are. And, you know, conflicted with listing our rights as though we were God. I hope we're conflicted. Or, you know, maybe we didn't want to talk about responsibilities that early in the morning. (laughs) You know, when it's all you can do to drink your orange juice and to get up. And to be honest, it was all I could do to get out of bed that day. I don't know all that was going on, but I think that was at least part of it. And the Scripture helps us to get it right here. Because on one hand, we're to seize our responsibilities as good Christian citizens. Oftentimes, more often than we do, maybe, on one hand, we're to seize our responsibilities. On the other, we're to hold our rights with open hands. Not that we don't stand for what's right. Not that we don't defend the right of freedom of speech and of religion and all the rest. But we don't hold on to them angrily as though, as though if we lose them, we've lost everything. No. Those churches are strongest in countries that have lost their right of worship. Rights aren't everything. And so we hold them with open hands. We hold our, we're supposed to hold our lives, right, with open hands. And almost more than anything else, we're going to see today that 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 attitude from the church to the community to the Congress will give us common ground. It's more an attitudinal thing as to how we do it than exactly what we're doing. Now, before you turn the channel, hear me out. That's where it begins. And Paul's main point in Romans 13 to 19 is this. Rights are wrong when brothers are hurt. Rights are wrong when brothers are hurt. We've been looking at the main obstacles to love that Paul covers in Romans 14 and 15. If you remember, in these two chapters, Romans 14 and 15, they're about the the supreme quality of true Christianity. After, in Romans 12, we list all of these qualities that we can reflect. This is the supreme quality that he focuses on. And that is very simply love. That we love one another and that we love outsiders. We love our enemies. Like Christ did. Love. And he starts out by focusing negatively, kind of uh, diagnostically, you might say, on why we don't love one another as we ought to. And he starts it at home, which is what we're going to do in the family and in the church. There are two main obstacles, according to Paul. First is judging our brothers. We spent a couple weeks on that. 
and then second, this week, demanding our rights. One of the two greatest obstacles to the most important quality of true Christianity, demanding our rights. Here's the big idea, the big idea of the passage. We're going to see today that especially here in the U.S. of A., where everyone, you know, where it seems everyone's demanding their rights, true love, and here it is, true love discerns when rights are wrong. And true freedom is the power to lay down your rights. And true Christians do just that, knowing that rights are wrong when brothers are hurt which I think goes a little bit against the grain of our American culture. Now, let me put it in context. Paul's talking about what you might call gray areas here, and he's saying that we should take every precaution as a church not to divide over gray areas. That is where the Scripture is not all that clear, which is easy to do, especially if you're into morality. It's so easy to draw lines in the sand that the Scripture doesn't draw. And part of that means this, not insisting on your right, my right, to indulge in any gray area when others would be hurt. And we'll talk about those gray areas in a bit. Because it's entirely possible to be, to be morally right in what you do and say, but ethically wrong, violating the law of love. To be, you know, to be right in the eyes of the law, you might say, of the Bible, but dead wrong in the eyes of love. If you're measuring all that you do by the law of love, as Paul said we ought to in Romans 13, 9, rights can be wrong when in the exercise of those rights, others are hurt. So from the get-go, he's holding rights with open hands and not grasping them which for us is from the get-go what we need to be doing, starting at home and in the church. Romans 14, starting in verse 13. And I'll go through the entire passage quickly with a little commentary to get a bird's-eye view first, and then we'll apply the two main points here. So listen carefully. Verse 13, and I'm reading from the New Living Bible. So don't judge each other anymore. Don't judge each other anymore. He's transitioning here from judging our brothers in gray areas to demanding our rights when it comes to indulging ourselves in those gray areas. Don't judge each other anymore. Decide instead to live in such a way that you don't put an obstacle in another Christian's path. And then he explains himself. I know and am perfectly sure on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. I've got a right to eat it. There's nothing wrong with it. That is, by rights, I can eat anything. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols or food that's not kosher. That's the subject here, etc., etc., etc. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. That gets into the conscience, which we talked about last week. If it goes against their conscience, it is wrong. They shouldn't do it. Um, uh, If another Christian is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. That is, they'll say you can do it, they shouldn't. They do it because of your example, and they go against their conscience, and it's a slippery slope. That's the idea. Therefore, do um, not let what is for you a good thing, a rightful thing, a legal thing, be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink. That is, that is, being a Christian is not about indulging your right to do what you want, to eat or drink or whatever, so long as it's lawful. That's not the most important thing in life. Maybe being an American means that, but not being a Christian, because being a Christian is not about selfish pursuit. No, it's about spiritual fruits, starting with the fruit of love that he's already mentioned. Listen, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but about spiritual fruits, but right, and here they are, righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit and under it all love, which is the concept. If you serve Christ with this attitude, bear with me, we're almost done, rather than just serving your own interests, rather than just demanding your rights, you serve Christ and serve others in love, you will please God. And other people will approve approve of you too. So then, let us pursue the things that make for peace in the family, in the church, in the community, in the country. Which make for peace rather than the war that results when everyone's out to get what's rightfully theirs. Does that sound like a country you know of? That sounds like something that sometimes surges in me when I go to vote or whatever, when I think about what's going on. So then let us aim for harmony and build each other up. He's saying it's got to start at home, and so that's where we'll start. You can reduce these seven verses into two very simple but very powerful points of application. First, give in. Lay down your rights. That's our attitude. And then second, grow up. Love your brother. That's our action. Indeed, we grow up by giving in. You'll find, all, you'll find this all through Scripture. First, give in. Lay down your rights. Or in the language that Christ used, He said something far more radical. He said, hate your rights. Forsake them for My sake. True Christians do that. Hate your rights by comparison to how much you love Me and love your brother. For whom I died when he was my enemy. What are you doing with your enemies? And if you don't feel love for him, he says, do it out of love for me. For if anyone comes after me and does not hate even his own life, he is not worthy to be my disciple. This is pretty countercultural stuff, isn't it? If because of food your brother is hurt, verse 15, you are no longer walking according to love. Hate food, even though you have a right to eat it. Later on, Paul says, It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's verse 31. In the parallel passage to this one, 1 Corinthians 8, he says this, Take care lest this right of yours... There he actually uses the word. Take care lest this right of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block for the weak. And so the clear teaching here is that if uh, in the exercise of some right your brother is hurt, you are to give it up. Especially when it's just in the air to demand your rights. True love has the sensitivity to discern when rights are wrong. And the true freedom is the power to lay them down, not the power to get them and hold on to them, as though that's power. And true Christians do just that. 
Because rights are wrong when brothers are hurt. Now, how does this apply today? Well, in many, many ways, from the obvious to the not so obvious. I'll just give a few. I think we have to be very careful, for instance, when it comes to alcohol. No, I don't believe it's wrong to drink in moderation. I enjoy it myself. But I do believe it's very possible to cause a brother to stumble in your drinking, even when it's done in moderation. So you have to be very open to give it up in certain circumstances, at certain places, when certain people are there. Even the smell of it, smell of it can set off a cycle of addiction for someone who can't handle it. And we have people in this church who are in AA. Even the thought of it can. Kind of reminds me of what a pastor, an associate pastor at our last church did. His name was Dave Ward. Um, we were there at the church when we celebrated our 21st anniversary as a church. And on this great celebration, the, the, our birthday, the day of our 25th anniversary, he got up to do his normal welcome and announcements. And then he said this, hey guys, we're 21. And that means we can now serve wine in communion. All right. Got a big laugh. Well, well the... There's one reason why we don't serve real wine here at Communion, though some might like to. It's out of this very principle. Gambling. For some of you, this is an issue. For others, it isn't. Is it right or wrong in and of itself? Well, let's lay that aside for a moment. I won't even address that. The one thing that is certain is this. It is as bad as alcohol, if not worse, for a whole lot of people. Gambling poses a special threat to America's youth. The, the lottery attracts a high percentage of underage players. In fact, one survey uh, uh, of Texas youth aged 14 to 17 found that 79% had gambled. And it's been shown, listen to this, that youths are particularly prone to gambling problems if their parents gamble. You may be able to handle it, but, what, but can your kids? Or the kids in the church that may hear about you're doing it. Duran Jacobs, a pioneer in treating compulsive gambling disorders. There are chapters that do that all across the nation, just like AA. He's found that young people are 2.5 times as likely as adults to become problem gamblers. One survey of Minnesota youth found that among youths who have problem, uh, gambling problems, 80% have parents who gambled. Can you lay down your rights for your kids? I hope so. Movies. Just remember this, if you're a parent, and I don't want to get legalistic here, we're just applying the Scripture. If you're a parent, your example sets the norm in your kid's eyes. Kind of the baseline, you know, of what's normal. The place from which they're going to go on to push the envelope, as most kids do, right? And so, where do you want them to be? Don't you, know, don't you push the envelope and then expect them to start where you did 30 years ago with Leave It to Beaver. No, they'll start where you began. They'll start where you left off. And so it's not in love if we indulge. For if because of drinking or gaming or movies... Your brother or sister, son or daughter is hurt. You are no longer walking in love. If you're a single adult, you obviously need to be very careful about how far you go with the opposite sex. For you, as a man, a kiss may be just this token of affection. Uh, you know, kind of a means of, of innocent enjoyment. But for many women, that represents, that is a means of commitment. 
Generally speaking, the conscience of a woman, the constitution of a woman, is far better developed in terms of what commitment means than often that of a man. So handle with care. Do not destroy with a kiss her for whom Christ died. But it's not just the men. Women need to be very careful how they dress. Because the whole world is full of weaker brothers who can't handle the sight of much flesh. Most of your brothers are that way, if not all of them. Even the thought of much flesh. And so you need to be very careful how low that blouse goes, how high your skirt comes, how tight your clothes fit. This is not legalism. It's love. Because the sight of your body does just as much to him as the feel of his kiss does to you. For if because of food or drink or casino games or movies or something as simple as a kiss or your wardrobe, your brother or sister is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Lay down that right. True love discerns when rights are wrong. And true freedom is the power to lay them down. And true Christians do just that, knowing that rights are wrong when brothers are hurt. It all began with Christ, if you think about it, and it leads right up to the table. And it's all at the very heart of true Christianity, of what it means through the law of love. Had he, if you think about it, had he insisted on his rights, you know, we'd be in pretty big trouble, right? It all began with him laying down his rights. For although he existed in the form of God, Philippians 2.6, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He was God. He had that. It was his supreme right. The Philip translation says this, he did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but he emptied himself of all rights and privileges. And being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. He gave up his right to life. Which I guess brings us back to where we began today. For he who does not hate his own father and mother, yea, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not take his cross, like I did, and follow after me, dying for the sake of others, he's not worthy of me. That's Matthew 10, 38. Question, is the Christian right taking up the cross in America today? No, in some contexts we are, but in too many contexts we're taking up the sword. And as Christ said, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword if you get political too much. We, we have a whole lot of anger Christ said, if you're angry at someone in a fleshly way, you've as much as murdered them. And there's a whole lot of murder going on in politics these days. No wonder there's bad blood, blood revenge. And too often the Christian right is angry in a fleshly way, and we, just as much as they are, yeah, destroying America. Period. End of discussion. James says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. No, he says it brings disorder and every evil thing. 
Why do you think we have disorder and every evil thing? That's one, anyway, one fundamental reason. Too much anger on both sides. And all hell breaks loose. Do you like saying, can't we at least get along? Can't we at least be friends? Shake each other's hand. Cross the aisle. You're thinking, yeah, but they hate us. Okay, then hate them too. Throw fuel on the fire. Is that the solution? That makes a lot of sense. No, we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who persecute us. Not that we're wishy-washy in things that are important, that God thinks strongly about in the political realm, but it's our attitude that's everything. It's not that we're standing for wrong things nearly as much as it is that we're standing for them in the wrong way, according to Scripture. It's an attitudinal issue that's proving to be so volatile. Too often, we have an attitude of hate rather than love, forgetting, as I read somewhere, that hatred is not a family value. In defending family values, we violate the ultimate family value. And what are we teaching our kids? It's like we, like we read earlier at the beginning of the service. Honor all people. It's an attitudinal issue. The key to healing the land, like we also read, is if my people who are called by my name, it starts with us, humble themselves. Then I will go on to heal their land. Paul said, have this attitude in yourselves as you fight for what's right. The attitude of one who picks up the cross, not the sword. The attitude of the humble one who did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but emptied himself of all rights and privileges and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. I don't know about you, but I was thinking this week as I was working through, through this, uh, we so need him in us to do it. It's so easy to get caught up in a fleshly way on an issue that is of supreme importance. I can do that with the issue of abortion. That's my hot button. All of us have a hot button. All of us need to confess properly to some degree. We so need Him in us. That's what I've been thinking. To do it through us as we fight the good fight in this wicked and perverse generation. And that's what communion is all about, isn't it? We take Him into us to remind ourselves that he, he is in us, to do it through us. And as we digest the teaching of His Word, He then goes on to incarnate it through us, through our attitudes and actions. And He's already done that in a lot of ways. I, that's one thing that attracted us here. We're not polarized politically, anything like other conservative churches I've been in. So we got a pretty good foundation. Let's just not take it for granted and build on it right now. And to that end, we'll have the uh, ushers come forward, or the servers. Father, I pray very simply today that uh, you would uh, make us instruments of your peace after the Prince of Peace who came to reign in our hearts as we become ambassadors of your love, even when it's standing for the truth, forth-telling the truth, drawing of a line in the sand, help us to do it in love.
I pray that as we take the bread, the broken body, broken because of our sin, that, um, that You'd give us the humility of those who know they're just sinners saved by grace. Break us now. Break our hearts as we confess our sins, maybe sins in this area that we've been talking about today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, in this golden silence filled with your Spirit, I pray that what we do physically would change something in us spiritually as we take in the broken body. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, I do want to thank You that You have forgiven our sins. And there is no sin so great, not even murdering a brother or an infant, 
for which your grace is not greater still if we repent in brokenness. Thank you for the cup that we're about to take, standing for the shed blood, the shed grace that we didn't deserve, to pour through our broken hearts to make us whole and to empower us from the inside out with true truth and love. We pray that you do that now as we take of the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Well, why don't we all stand together? Now go into the world in peace. 
be an instrument of peace. Have courage. Yes, hold on to what is good, but also honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us and through us all this week. Amen. And amen. Thanks for coming. Hope you all join us for our potluck at 11 o'clock.